KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, it's time to impeach Clarence Thomas. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation. Also, Anatole Levin is back from Ukraine after a three-week visit where he found soldiers determined to win and Russian bombardment doing surprisingly little damage in cities. We'll speak with him later in the hour. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here as always, John. Well, we begin today with News of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. 11,500 members of the Writers Guild of America went on strike at midnight Monday, seeking a new film and TV contract. The writers voted for the strike by a historic margin, 98% in favor, 2% opposed. Uh, this walkout is stopping a lot of TV and film production nationwide. It could, last, it could last for weeks. It could last for months. The last writer's strike was in 2007. That one lasted 100 days. Before that, the writers walked the picket lines in 1988 for 153 days. That's five months. Uh, they've been struggling against the studios for a long time. And you know something about this history. I do. Uh, I actually wrote my senior thesis in college 800 years ago <laughs> about the early uh, Screenwriters Guild, as it was then called. Historically, it, it always has been the uh, most unfavored child of the studios when compared to the other guilds. Uh, that's partly because back in the day, the studios couldn't really attack their own movie stars. So when the uh, actors uh, decided to unionize, the, the studios didn't play really any hardball. Uh, as soon as the Supreme Court upheld the National Labor Relations Act in 1937, they were rather quickly cut a contract with the uh, Green Actors Guild. Directors like actors can shut down a set, can shut down a soundstage, can shut down a studio, by refusing to work. And so directors had some clout too, not quite as much as the actors, but they had uh, got a contract with the studios uh, about eight or nine months after the court ruling in, in, in 1938. The writers, it took five years for them to get a contract. They didn't get a, their first contract until 1942. Of course, if the writers are back in the old days, when they struck, the studios had uh, lots of scripts still sitting on their shelves, so they didn't impact the point of production, as it is called, uh, with anywhere near the immediate severity of the actors and directors. Uh, plus, also, the studio heads, I mean, the, the Screen Actors, the Screenwriters Guild, historically consisted of a liberal faction and a radical faction, and both those factions were to the left of the studio heads. So uh, for any number of reasons, uh, you know, they they had a uh, an uphill climb. Let me just say uh, it wasn't yeah. hard to be to the left of the studio heads. That's true. Uh, Louis B. Mayer, the uh, uh, most significant studio head in those days, was the national finance chair for many years of the Republican Party. So, you know, that pretty, pretty clearly uh, stated his position. Really, historically, the only studio in, in back in classic old Hollywood, fa old Hollywood fashion from the 
20s through the uh, at least the end of the 40s that backed the, the sort of the Democrats uh, was uh, was Warner Brothers. The writers took a long time to get a union, partly because the studio heads objected to the fact that they had this communist faction, which empowered a lot of red baiting on behalf of the studios. Oh, that's true. It, but the studios, you know, were also scared about the government cracking down on movies. And since most of the studio heads were themselves Jewish immigrants, they were also, uh, you know, very fearful about, you know, anything uh, presumably controversial or even not controversial, but just that didn't pass muster with Louis B. Mayer, perhaps unleashing anti-Semitism. So they were uh, always a, a, a really timorous bunch. And, 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 and they really didn't like the left anyway. And the, it wouldn't have mattered if it was a socialist left or a Trotskyist left or a communist left. They just didn't like it. I mean, they didn't like the uh, idea that uh, Upton Sinclair running in 1934 for governor, the label socialist, which he had given himself for decades, bothered them. But it bothered them less than, than that he proposed to raise taxes on the rich. That was, uh, you know, that was his uh, his uh, just un unforgivable offense. And of course, the studios then all uh, plunged in to uh, help uh, defeat Upton Sinclair in 1934. That was a little bit of the genesis of the Hollywood left, just reacting against that, that their own studios were campaigning against Upton Sinclair. And that a number of them asked them as employees or told them to make some small contributions to the studio's funding of Sinclair's Republican opponent's campaign. I mean, you didn't have to be a communist to uh, uh, take umbrage at that. I, I think probably the most prominent figure in Hollywood who opposed it was Jimmy Cagney, who was hardly a communist, but at that point in his career was a relatively progressive guy. Well, this week, picket lines are up across Los Angeles, and it's fascinating to see how the landscape of what we call Hollywood has changed, not just since the 40s, but since the last strike in 2008. Uh, the biggest picket lines, I think, are outside the new Netflix headquarters in Hollywood, which is at Sunset and Van Ness. This opened uh, just two years ago, 600,000 square feet of Netflix headquarters. Old Hollywood, of course, is being picketed. Picket, pickets are walking in Burbank outside Warner Brothers and outside Disney. And in my neighborhood of West LA, there's at least 100 pickets outside the Fox Studios gate on Pico Boulevard in Century City. And then Culver City has become an incredibly powerful center of the new streaming services. Amazon has built a huge facility in downtown Culver City, starting in 2017, 630,000 square feet of film studios, uh, 2,700 employees. There was big news when Amazon in Culver City unveiled the largest virtual production stage maybe anywhere in the world, 34,000 square feet, one stage where they have thousands of LED panels that can recreate you know, any outdoor space on Earth getting rid of the green screen that uh, that actors used to do their thing in, in front of. So Culver City is now a huge center of picket lines in places that didn't exist five or 10 or 20 years ago. 
But it, Culver City isn't completely new as a site of the film industry. Far from it. Uh, the largest studio in the classic days of uh, old Hollywood was MG MGM, which is in Culver City. In fact, you know, some of the studios uh, were sort of located in these little municipalities so they could control them. And if there was any uh, tax issues within those municipalities, and so you have Culver City for MGM, you have Universal City for uh, Universal, and, and so it goes. But there were huge picket lines back in the day outside MGM, so uh, whatever is old is new again, only this time it's called Apple. <laughs> MGM, by the way, today is Sony Studios, and right. Apple that you have mentioned is building an even bigger complex in downtown uh, Culver City that's under construction right now. Uh, and this all underlines the fact that LA is still in many ways a, a company town, or at least a one industry town, where the TV and film co companies are a huge part of the economy. So when the writers go on strike, it is a very big deal everywhere in LA, not just because actors and directors don't uh, don't work, but there's a lot of stagehands and carpenters and makeup people, and lighting and sound people. And then there's everybody outside the studios, the caterers, the prop houses, the florists who deliver flowers. Uh, so. This is a big thing in what, at times like this, we realize is, is still kind of a one industry town. This reminds me of something I did back in the LA Weekly uh, when I was editing, uh, when I was executive editor of the LA Weekly in the 1990s. I was noting that all of the big companies based in LA, even then, had been made part of larger companies headquartered elsewhere. And all of the, uh, the studios at that time were part of a larger uh, company, as you, you yourself said, M it's MGM is now Sony, Columbia and Paramount were bought by larger, uh, you know, uh, entities, and uh, so on down the line, so that except for Disney, which still is based, you know, the headquarters of the corporation itself is in Los Angeles, the, the, these companies are headquartered elsewhere. And this, this adds a, a complication to the writer's strike, because you know, I mean, back in the 1930s and 40s, you know, it was what Harry Cohn and Sam Goldwyn and Louis Mayer et al. and Jack Warner, uh, you know, it was their own business. And uh, if production shut down, that was all of their business shutting down. If, you know, these huge Apple studios, when production shuts down there, well, Apple, you know, or Amazon or whatever, uh, you know, they can they can make out just fine uh, because they have a few other things going for them. You mentioned uh, Apple and Amazon. Let's also notice that 10 or 20 years ago, Amazon and Apple were not part of the entertainment industry. Right. They were not producing films. They did not own studios that employed thousands of people. Their core business, as you say, today is not entertainment. And the most notable thing is Amazon especially, but also Apple. These are non-union employers. They've always tried to stop unions, and now they're sitting on the employer side with Disney and Paramount and Warner Brothers. Don't you think this is going to make it a little harder? I should say that I think Apple and Amazon have said, look, they're going to follow the lead of the traditional studios in this. But, you know, they are really 800-pound gorillas compared to the traditional studios. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that that's just a steeper hill for the writers and all of labor in Hollywood decline. 
And just to remember the time of the last strike in 2007, Netflix did exist, but it was a mail order DVD business. Remember they had those red envelopes. You would use yep. the internet to rent a DVD, which they would mail you. And then you would turn the envelope over and send it back to them. Today, Netflix produces films, not just in Culver City, but in South Korea, in Germany, all over the place. And Netflix says, because its production base is so diverse, they already have three months of new shows ready to go and think they'll be able to last a lot longer than that. So, I mean, we had a five month strike in 1988. Of course, the Writers Guild knows about this situation and they say they have a $20 million strike fund ready. So it looks like both sides are dug in for a long time here. Yeah, uh, and in the 2007 strike, the last one, 15 years ago, uh, streaming was just coming in, and it began to be an issue then, but it is in many ways the primary issue now because the old model of a writer being paid residuals when uh, his or her or their uh, movie or TV show was aired on TV years later, was in repeats or whatever, Streaming doesn't work that way. And, uh, you know, uh, there are uh, popular TV series, among other things, that have been streamed more than 100 million times, and the writers don't get anything comparable to their old residuals. When they struck 15 years ago, I was writing about it both in the Washington Post and in the American Prospect, and I actually had to explain streaming because it was <laughs> it was pretty new, and I... I was, you know, saying, and I, I used a line I, I in the piece that said, you know, although I don't think Lawrence of Arabia would come across very well on my cell phone, even if my mother didn't call during the attack on Aqaba. <laughs> so this was reprinted uh, with my blessing on the uh, strike website, the, you know, uh, updated every few hours of the Writers Guild. And there was an issue as to whether they'd get a settlement uh, before the Oscars. If they didn't, there'd be no writers on the Oscars and the Oscars might well not go on. Uh, But they settled just before the Oscars. And that year, Jon Stewart was the host of the Oscars. And I'm watching, you know, here in D.C. on my on my TV. And after one commercial break, Jon Stewart comes back on stage, pulls out his cell phone, looks at it and says, Somehow this isn't doing justice to Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> so inadvertently, I wrote a, a joke for Jon Stewart on the Oscars because of the writer's strike. That's my own sort of pr- point of personal privilege, as they say. Does that qualify you to become a member of the Writers Guild Union? Uh, <laughs> it may well. It's sort of an unusual case, but who knows? Well, I'm also interested in what the other unions may do or not do about this strike. The Teamsters have said they will not cross these picket lines. And there, there is a Hollywood Teamsters local 399, which works for the studios, the drivers, the location managers, the casting directors all turn out to be Teamsters. And of course, Teamsters do a lot of other things that impact the studios. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are uh, an essential old guard union with which the studios had to come to terms many decades ago. Now, there's some concern among the writers that the director's uh, uh, contract uh, runs out shortly and that they'll go into negotiations 
with the studios in June. And there's some fear that the directors will strike a deal that will somewhat set a template that might undermine the writers. There's some, some, some concern about that. Uh, the blue collar unions are pretty good on this stuff, though. I mean, uh, uh, certainly the Teamsters, uh, you know, which have a sort of militant history vis-a-vis uh, -vis the studios and now have a kind of militant uh, leadership at the top national level as well. And there's another union that's part of this we haven't talked about. You may be one of the few people who actually knows what IATSE stands for. The International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees. Yeah, you get an A plus. Yeah, on yeah, that. that that and a couple of bucks gets me on the metro. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so they are. They have a no strike clause in their current contract, but they are strong. They've issued a state st statement strongly supporting uh, the union and will uh, observe the picket lines when if they are still up when their contract runs out. Yeah, I don't know when IATSE's contract runs out. And uh, this writer strike is part of a larger pattern of union activity that you have been analyzing. I have. And what I've basically concluded is that uh, the rate of approval for unions is very high, particularly among the young. Uh, and left to their own devices, uh, they would, you know, overwhelmingly unionize. Polling shows that. But only some of them are left to their own devices. Uh, generally speaking, uh, if an employer wants to uh, keep a union out of their, you know, out of his or her uh, business, uh, the uh, usually common tactic is simply to fire uh, the most pro-union workers. That's against the law, but the law is so uh, weak that there's no effective penalty for that. So the workers who are able to unionize tend to be, in this day and age, overwhelmingly workers that these uh, employers can't readily replace. Uh, and so what we're seeing is, uh, in, in the last two years in particular, a wave of professional or proto-professional unionization, uh, TAs and RAs on college campuses. I noted that uh, in the last uh, two years, uh, uh, there were 17 uh, NLRB-supervised elections at private colleges and universities. The unions won all 17 of them. Uh, I totaled up the votes, uh, and 89% uh, across all of these campuses combined, it was 89% voted uh, to uh, form a union. Uh, you can't fire them, or no one is teaching on campuses. Um, you know, similarly, museums, think tanks, NGOs, uh, professionals in healthcare, people who cannot be replaced are unionizing in droves. I, I just got an email today that uh, they reached a first contract with the staff at the Brookings Institution, <laughs> Washington, D.C.'s oh. oldest and most established think tank. Uh, you know, and that's the young workers there, uh, of whom there are many. And in your opinion, Writers are the, in the same category of people who cannot be easily replaced by the employers. They can't be easily replaced, but the studios hate them, and so therefore, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a long uh, we're going to have a long strike. And you know, I mean, obviously, the switch to streaming is uh, a huge change in the industry. The switch to uh, television series lasting eight episodes instead of twenty episodes is a huge change in the industry. There's, you know, the, 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 it's a new terrain. And 
this requires uh, working out a, a contract, a literal contract and a social contract for what workers uh, will, whether workers will get what they deserve in this new terrain. Well, I'm sure we'll be returning to this topic in the coming weeks. But uh, finally today, it's time for Trump Watch, news about our ex-president and his many crimes. On Tuesday, Trump released a video calling for a major expansion of the federal government's power over colleges and universities. He, he said the task, which he promised to fulfill if he's elected president, was, quote, reclaiming campuses that are, quote, dominated by Marxist maniacs and lunatics, close quote. I think he's talking about some of our friends. I, I think he's uh, talking about uh, the person I'm speaking with right now. And uh, <laughs> he was a professor at uh, UC Irvine. Yeah. But it are not, yeah. It's not the American prospect founders include many, uh, many Marxist maniacs among them? Uh, uh, some, some. <laughs> uh, Paul Starr uh, consider is, is, is a liberal. Uh, Kuttner is a socialist, but Kuttner is not an academic. Now, obviously, the power of the president to do that at least if there's any adherence to the Constitution and to federalism, is sort of non-existent. But, uh, you know, that shouldn't necessarily deter someone uh, like, uh, like Donald Trump. Marxist maniacs and lunatics on our program. Harold Meyerson. Maniacs and lunatics are us, yes. Uh, <laughs> Harold Meyerson, readamidprospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always great to be here, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's time to impeach Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. His books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today at the magazine offices in Manhattan. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, we're speaking on Tuesday as the Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings on Supreme Court ethics. I thought Supreme Court justices were appointed for life, but you point out in the nation that that's not what the Constitution says. Article 3 says judges, quote, shall hold their offices during good behavior, close quote. And you think Clarence Thomas's behavior has not been good. Well, I mean, where to begin with Clarence Thomas? Shall we begin with the fact that his wife was clearly an active plotter in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results? Shall we begin with the fact that he's gone on trips with a Texas billionaire, Harlan Crow, who was also on the board of the Club for Growth and other right-wing groups, which have regularly filed amicus briefs with the Supreme Court, and that at least one of those trips, I think it was to Indonesia, would have cost in the neighborhood of half a million dollars if Jeannie and Clarence Thomas had paid their own way. Uh, there are plenty of places to begin, but yes, taking, taking freebies from people who have business before the courts is certainly something that you would think ought to be frowned on. 
<laughs> and the Constitution has set up a procedure for removing justices and judges for bad behavior, impeachment. But has a Supreme Court justice ever been impeached? Well, the answer to that is 15 federal judges have been impeached, including Supreme Court justices. And were any of them removed from office after being impeached? Eight of them have been removed because for people who've forgotten, and I don't know how you could have forgotten in the last four years in this country, but impeachment is like an indictment. It has to be voted on by the House, but you get to keep your job, as we saw in the case of Donald J. Trump, if the Senate fails to convict. So yes, for example, Robert Archbald in 1910 took his wife on a trip to Europe, paid for by Henry Cannon, and in fact, his wife's cousin, who also happened to be an officer of various railroad and coal companies that sometimes had business before the court. Archbald was impeached. His wife was called to testify in addition to himself. She testified that Cannon was her cousin, and the two families frequently enjoyed traveling together. The New York Times at the time thought Archbald gave a good account of himself in which he admitted accepting the gifts, but denied that any impropriety was involved. The Senate, however, felt otherwise, and he was convicted and removed from office. The exact parallels with the Thomas's behavior don't take a lot of emphasizing. Are you saying that Clarence Thomas in effect, was bribed to change a vote? Seems to me Clarence Thomas does what he wants to, and no one can influence him, including his colleagues. I mean, you see this line of argument in the press, but it's what, it's what fans of prestidigitation call misdirection. <laughs> it's entirely likely that Archbold also would have voted for whatever railroad company or coal company appeared before the court, because that's the way Supreme Court justices voted in those days. However, you are not allowed to accept gifts from people who have business before the court, even if you could show that the business that they have is something you'd already voted their way on 15 times before. And, you know, and even if the gift was just because they love the way you think and they want you to keep thinking that way, that's not the way we do things. That is corruption. That's impeachable. And not just for Supreme Court justice, city council members, school board members. Exactly. So, you know, the argument that I was going to vote that way anyway is always a, a classic piece of misdirection and is never relevant to the question of whether you are allowed to take money from somebody who has business before your court. Now we get to the current political realities. Congress has the power to impeach Clarence Thomas and remove him from office, but it doesn't have the votes. Just to review, the impeachment process begins with the House Judiciary Committee holding hearings. Now Republicans control the House. They control the Judiciary Committee. It, takes, it would take 218 votes in the House to impeach a justice and send his case to the Senate for trial. It doesn't seem like there are 218 votes. Now, there are lots of, lots of pieces here. One is, would the House conceivably impeach Clarence Thomas? And the answer to that is you don't know until you try. If Republicans want to go on record as saying this kind of corruption is fine as long as our guys do it, then Democrats ought to give them that chance again and again and again. And also, given the current balance of forces in the House and the fact that you've got, you know, these uh, loose cannon pop right-wing populists 
who might well decide this is where they want to make Kevin McCarthy look bad. And we should, again, give them the opportunity to do that. So there's every reason to push for Democrats in the House to push for impeachment and for Democrats on the Judiciary Committee in the House particularly. The Senate can take some actions on its own. Senate committees have power to oversee the court in some ways. And Senate, of course, is controlled by Democrats. And the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee is Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois. Last week, he invited Chief Justice John Roberts to testify at today's hearing, we're speaking on Tuesday, about Supreme Court ethics. Roberts declined the invitation, citing what he called separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. What do you think of those reasons? Well, I think they're bunk, but (laughs) they're plausible bunk. Some nation listeners may recall that back in the 1950s, there were two committees that were trying to root out communists in the federal government. There was a House committee, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and there was a Senate committee, And the Senate committee, even though this was the House committee's main kind of bailiwick, the Senate committee, under a fellow named Joseph McCarthy, managed to make quite a lot of noise. So it's clear that if the Senate committee wants to use its subpoena power, wants to call witnesses before it, wants to swear them in under oath, and wants to take testimony under the penalty of perjury, it can go pretty far if it wants to. The question is, do Democrats want to? Do they want to make a fight over this? Do they have the will to fight? And that is a question that I'm afraid the answer so far seems to be not so much. Well, there is a bill, a bipartisan bill in the Senate now. Angus King of Maine and Republican Lisa Murkowski of Alaska have co-authored a bill that would require the Supreme Court to create its own code of conduct for justices and require the court to publish that code and appoint someone to hear complaints about potential violations. And it would mandate an annual report on such investigations and require that they make public actions taken by the court in response. So this is a bill that would require the court to impose an ethical code upon itself, because as we've learned recently, the Supreme Court does not have a code of ethics. Under this bill, Congress would not determine what that code could be or what the punishments should be. What do you think of that as a response to the Clarence Thomas case? Uh, I think it's incredibly inadequate. No, there again, there are lots of pieces to that. First of all, there is a code of conduct for federal judiciary, for the federal judiciary. It's just not clear that it applies to the Supreme Court, but it also isn't clear that it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. So, you know, one thing to do is to haul them up on charges of violating that code and see whether they want to say it doesn't apply to us. We get to set our own rules. I would also at this point point you and our listeners to the many wonderful columns written by Ellie Mistal, who points out that this court is never going to fix itself in its current composition and neither is it fixable in its current composition by Congress. And that, you know, in order to get decisions that are more in line with what most people in this country actually want, you're going to have to change the composition of this court, probably by adding additional justices. Again, that's something that doesn't require a constitutional amendment that is well within the power of 
a president, particularly if the Democratic Party control both houses of Congress in the next election. It's been done many times in our past. You know, the court started out with five justices. Here we are at nine. That's easy to do legislatively. It's just not easy to do politically. And again, as Ellie has pointed out, um, so I'm just quoting him, you can't solve a political problem through judicial method. At the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, hearing on Supreme Court ethics on Tuesday, Republican Lindsey Graham argued that all this is happening now only because Trump's nominees created a right-wing supermajority on the court for the first time in, what, almost a century. And it's only because of the court's recent decisions that Democrats are talking now about impeaching uh, a conservative justice. What do you say to that argument? I say that there's a way in which he's absolutely right, that it's only because there's a right-wing supermajority on the court that has thrown out precedent, that has overturned long-standing individual rights, that the question of changing the composition of the court or impeachment has become so salient. But, you know, this is one of these things where the voices of moderation say, well, if the Democrats change the court now, then the Republicans will change it later. And this will launch a terrible tit-for-tat exchange, which will be bad for us. And the answer to that is that you do not end attacks on our rights, which have been committed by this court repeatedly, in which if Clarence Thomas has its way, his way, include things like gay marriage and you know other legislation by committing suicide. The answer to an attack on you is not a suicide pact. And that is what that is what Democrats who refuse to engage politically with what is indeed a political problem fail to understand. One last thing. Clarence Thomas has actually commented on all this. He has said that he will be guided in the future by updated rules that clearly require justices to report private jet travel. Your comment? Well, I love that. You know, <laughs> let's put it this way. If you take a shoplifter and you catch him outside the store, and he says, in future, I will be guided by the rule that says you can't steal from this store, and now I'm going to go home, he'd get laughed at. Ridiculous suggestion that we should let him get away with it because he's promised to behave better in the future. There's another important uh, obstacle here, uh, which is that the Senate Judiciary Committee has lost its Democratic majority because of the absence of California Senator Dianne Feinstein. What can be done about that? She can be removed, uh, and she should be removed forthwith. And what are the grounds for removing Dianne Feinstein? That she's unable to perform the duties of her office. And in this case, she's holding up the whole country's business. There are those who say that people like me who think she should be removed, as I called for in the editorial of the nation that you're referencing, are doing so on sexist grounds. And those people have just as much merit as those who say that the call to impeach Clarence Thomas is done on racial ground. They both should be removed, which is what I argue in the nation. And the Senate has the means to do it even if not formally, because that may be a, a cumbersome process. But Chuck Schumer just needs to take her aside and say, look, Diane, you've, it's time for you to go. And, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. But if we do it the hard way, it's not going to go well for you. D.D. Guttenplan, 
He wrote about impeaching Clarence Thomas and removing Dianne Feinstein for The Nation magazine. You can read his editorial at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Anatole Levin spent three weeks in Ukraine recently. He's back now with his report. He's a former war correspondent and director of the Quincy Institute's Eurasia program. He's the author of the book, Ukraine and Russia. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. We reached him today in England. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Well, where in Ukraine did you go and how much of the war did you see? Uh, I went uh, to Kiev, to the um, towns north of Kiev, uh, Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanko, which were where the fighting was and which were partly occupied by Russia at the start of the war 13 months ago. I went to the city of Dnipro in central Ukraine and to Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine. Most of Zaporizhia province is occupied by the Russians, but the city is still in Ukrainian hands. The front line runs about 20 miles to the south. And um, there I had an accident, which was nothing to do with the war. Uh, I just fell over. Um, but I spent a week in hospital in Zaporizhia. Uh, so I was there for 10 days altogether. And that gave me a chance actually to observe the progress of the Russian air campaign uh, against one Ukrainian city. Tell us about what you saw from that perspective. The air campaign uh, against uh, most of Ukraine uh, has been far less effective and far less destructive than I think is generally perceived uh, in the West. Now that of course is not true of uh, places like Bakhmut or Mariupol, uh, where there has been heavy fighting on the ground, but those cities were destroyed in, in ground fighting with artillery bombardments uh, over you know, weeks or months. But quite frankly, I mean, in Kiev uh, and Dnipro, and even to, to some extent in Zaporizhia, uh, if you were an unwary visitor, wasn't you know, especially looking out for, for damage, it would be possible to visit them and not know <laughs> that a war was going on. That's partly because there have been far fewer Russian missile attacks. It's not, you know, that the Western media um, falsifies anything exactly. It's just that, well, I used to be a journalist myself. You, you concentrate on where something has happened. But it's quite striking, for example, that in these cities, you know, if you take a picture of a, a destroyed building, you don't take a picture of all the buildings around it, which are, in fact, undamaged. And so there is a, an impression of much greater damage. Um, but it's also that, which could change, by the way, if, if it's true, as the leaks from the Pentagon uh, suggested that the Ukrainians are running out of anti-aircraft missiles. But uh, in recent months, the Ukrainians have been very effective at shooting down Russian missiles. Uh, but also the Russian missiles have been extremely inaccurate. And uh, I have described, you know, how you can clearly see what the Russians were aiming at. Um, and you can see that they missed and hit something else instead. Mm -hmm. That also makes it quite difficult to say often, you, you know, when 
the Russians have actually deliberately bombarded purely civilian targets, blocks of flats and so forth. And um, when it is what the United States in such circumstances would call collateral damage. In other words, they were aiming at, uh, from their point of view, at least a legitimate target, uh, which of course for the United States has always included civilian infrastructure, bridges, power stations and so forth. Um, and when they missed and hit something else, uh, or in one case I saw seemingly the Russian missile was brought down by a, a Ukrainian air defense missile. That's one thing. Um, secondly, uh, up to now, the uh, effect of the Russian bombardment on the Ukrainian economy has been limited. Um, the Ukrainians have also, with our help, become very good at repairing uh, damaged electricity infrastructure, which is mostly what the Russians have been aiming at. And uh, the population is certainly not intimidated. In fact, I mean, if one remembers the Second World War, you know, when populations stood up to infinitely higher levels of bombardment, I mean, frankly, all the Russian bombardment has done is to infuriate people uh, and, of course, contribute in the Russian speaking areas. And Dnipro and still more Zaporizhia have traditionally been Russian speaking, and at least until 2014. Um, large majorities regularly voted for pro-Russian candidates. Uh, that has now vanished. I mean, I found a good many people who off the record uh, expressed hopes that the war would end and doubts about complete Ukrainian victory. I, I did not find a single, not one person who had any sympathy for Putin, for the Russian government, for the Russian invasion, for the Russian armed forces. And, you know, I mean, that is the effect of being bombarded for a year, even if the bombardment was relatively ineffective. And, and what is li life like for uh, ordinary people, say, in Kiev? Uh, life continues pretty much as normal. Uh, food prices are high. I mean, I had a lot of people complaining uh, about that, but there's no lack of food. Um, you know, the shops are full. I mean, and the shops for ordinary people. Public transport works. Um, everybody ignores the air raid sirens. Um, I went to the ballet in the evening. It was packed. I wow. bought a couple of tickets. And I have to say, uh, which I think could play a, a part in politics in future, um, the wealthy of Kiev are still very much living the high life. Very, very, very expensive restaurants, um, which are still very, you know, heavily frequented. You know, I visited one luxury food store um, with uh, 106, I think, uh, different kinds of champagne and Prosecco, <laughs> wow. and the most expensive bottle for $600. Wow. That doesn't go down very well, you can imagine, with the, uh, the returning veterans. Uh, from the army, and I think that could be a, a you know resentment of the Kiev elites. We're told that the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian military remains high. I wonder if you saw any signs of war weariness among the civilians. Any young men avoiding military service or concern about that? Any cynicism about the war and the leadership? Not openly talking to me i mean uh, among some journalists yes but uh, i mean i have to say that, that there is a definite mood of fear of speaking your mind openly on these subjects unless you agree unconditionally with the government line uh, certainly the wounded soldiers i talked to 
went you know out of their way to stress high morale and determination to fight to the end uh, but on the other hand i did hear in kiev that there uh, there are sites on the um the the online chat service telegram where you know it, it's a bit like the um service the chat services on roads where you can hear about police uh, you know speed checks where young men tip each other off about where uh, the military authorities are conducting raids to round up young men of military age uh, and tip each other off so that they can avoid those areas and escape, which, of course, argues that, um, as, as we all know, enthusiasm for a war is one thing. Enthusiasm to fight in a war yourself can be a very different thing. Yes. So I would say that a, a willingness to, to serve is by no means unanimous, though... Uh, undoubtedly, there, there is still a, a, a great determination to fight on among a majority of Ukrainians. The New York Times on Tuesday published a big front page report on Ukraine's plans for a counteroffensive this spring. According to the Times, everything hinges on this counteroffensive. Ukraine hopes to break through Russian defenses and create a widespread collapse in Russia's army. Russia, of course, has more planes, more tanks, more artillery, more soldiers. Ukraine has a lot of new equipment now from the United States and Europe, newly trained troops. Its soldiers, of course, are more motivated, a lot more motivated. Ukraine has surprised everyone in the past with their military success. What do you think are the chances of them succeeding with the spring counteroffensive? I must say, I've become very cautious about predicting what happens on the battlefield because, you know, we've all been, including me, I have to say, proved wrong again and again. Uh, and the Ukrainians, yes, I mean, have surprised us. Uh, so um, I think we we have to wait and, and, and see. Uh, but undoubtedly, I mean, this, this offensive will be very important because uh, if the Ukrainians break through, then... It could have major political re uh, repercussions in Russia, but you will then have, I think, a, a real clash in the West between hardliners who say, now go on for complete victory, and others in Europe, but also, you know, by all accounts within the Biden administration, who will say, no, now, you know, Ukraine has recaptured most of what it's lost since last year. Now the time has come to stop and negotiate. And that's also, of course, because um, of this fear, which I think is well-based, that uh, if Ukraine goes on and tries to um, recapture Crimea, the Russians probably will escalate radically. Not straight to nuclear war, but um, you know, would begin a ladder of escalation that could well end in nuclear war. On the other hand, if the Ukrainian offensive fails, then the Times article you cited says this, that there will undoubtedly be voices in Europe and also uh, in the United States who will say, this can't go on forever. Uh, are we going to back the Ukrainians to attack and attack? There will also, I think, be some military analysts who will say, by letting the Ukrainians wear themselves out in this way, we are risking a much bigger defeat for them in future. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians fail completely and the Russians counterattack, then um, you will undoubtedly have voices, you know, including from Eastern Europe, who will say, oh, now, you know, we must save the Ukrainians by intervening directly. So there are opportunities for peace, or at least for a ceasefire, but there are also some 
you know, immense potential dangers down the road. Now, if Ukraine does succeed with its counteroffensive, does that mean that Vladimir Putin will sue for peace, will come to the negotiating table seeking a ceasefire or uh, a compromise? Putin certainly knows this is coming and is preparing for it. What do we know about his thinking at this point? Well, we know very little. What we can say for sure uh, is that neither Putin nor any conceivable Russian regime, and by that, to judge by his previous statements, I would include Alexei Navalny, uh, should he, in an extremely unlikely scenario, become president. None of them will give up Crimea. They would fight to the end to keep Crimea. And it would be, all, I would say, very nearly impossible to give up the eastern Donbass unless the Ukrainians have already conquered it. So what Russia might be brought to accept would be a ceasefire that froze the existing front lines achieved by a Ukrainian counteroffensive, or you know possibly uh, the existing front lines if a counteroffensive fails. But of course, the Ukrainian government and um, well, and now you know the, the latest um, proposed motion of the. Uh, US uh, Congress, if you've been following this, uh, has called for total uh, Russian withdrawal from all the territory that Russia has uh, occupied or, or backed since 2014. In other words, Russia must leave Crimea and the Donbass. Well, and the Ukrainian government has uh, repeatedly said that that is non-negotiable. Uh, although Sometimes Ukrainian officials have hinted that in the end it, it may have to be negotiable. Certainly, a good many ordinary Ukrainians think it will have to be negotiated. Just to review a little of the history of Crimea, was part of Russia transferred from Russia to Ukraine in 1954 by Khrushchev just as a decree. For 60 years then, it was part of Ukraine. Since 2014, Russia has occupied Crimea. That's nine years. A lot of ethnic Russians live there. Can you imagine a ceasefire, an end to the fighting with Crimea part of Ukraine again? No. I, I can, I suppose, just about imagine a total collapse of the Russian army. It's not at all likely, but, you know, we've seen that. In the past, many people make parallels um, with the First World War, and in the First World War, uh, in the end, every army, except the British, at one stage or another collapsed, including, of course, the Russian. So it is, I suppose, imaginable that that that, that could, could happen. But uh, I, I think that at that point, I mean, so many Russians have said to me, one Russian think tank, guy who was always in, in previously uh, you know, considered one of the pro-Westerners has said that, look, America will would certainly use nuclear weapons to defend Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. And in the very last resort, we should be willing to use nuclear weapons to defend Crimea and Sevastopol. A lot of people don't know about the American Congress's recent stand on this. Tell us a little more about that and its uh, implications. Well, it isn't uh, as yet uh, a stand as such. I mean, it hasn't, hasn't been voted in. But there is a resolution before Congress 
which would uh, essentially demand that the United States uh, commit itself to the existing Ukrainian government line, that all Ukrainian territory lost since 2014, including Crimea and Eastern Donbass, must go back to Ukraine, and that this is non-negotiable. In other words, that America must commit itself to total victory over Russia. Well, I mean, that means either war without end, I mean, literally war with no conceivable end in sight, uh, or a truly, truly serious risk uh, of nuclear war. And, of course, if it were seriously adopted by a US government, it would imply that the US should commit its own armed forces to pursue this end, since it's probably only through that that the Ukrainians could actually achieve this. Uh, but, uh, of course, this is also, um, quite apart from it being uh, you know, extremely bad in this particular case, uh, th this is a truly terrible example of Congress having absolutely no responsibility for the results, of course, of its of its votes, trying to tie an administration's hand in ways that makes serious diplomacy impossible. And of course, if this does lead to disaster, well, I mean, if it leads to complete disaster, um, we won't any of us need to worry about it because we'll all be dead. But even if it leads to more limited disaster, of course, all the people in Congress who have voted for this will act as if the resulting disaster had nothing to do with them. And I'm very sure that all the Republicans who vote for it will, of course, blame the entire disaster on the Biden administration, because that's what Congress does. It is a terrible way to run a railroad. Anatole Lieben, you can read his article, The Rise and Role of Ukrainian Ethnic Nationalism, at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, we consider deformed frogs and what we can learn from them about our changing environment. We turn to William Souter, the author of the new book, A Plague of Frogs, The Horrifying True Story. He joins us on the line from his home in Grant, Minnesota. Bill Souter, welcome to KPFK. Good evening, John. Nice to be with you. Uh, the New York Times book review, writing about your book, A Plague of Frogs, declared, quote, if frogs had searched far and wide for a spokesman, they could have found no one better than you. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I guess I've become uh, a spokesman for frogs. I've certainly become uh, a concerned citizen at, at uh, the very minimum. Well, tell us about uh, the, the frogs in question here. How were they discovered, and, and what did they look like? Some students on a, on a field trip in south-central Minnesota uh, discovered a number of frogs in a farm pond that had abnormal hind legs, that is, the back legs of these frogs, were not normal, and there was sort of an assortment of uh, deformities. Uh, uh, some of the frogs were missing one or a portion of their hind legs. Uh, some of the frogs had extra legs, and uh, many frogs had uh, various kinds of misshapen or, or uh, severely distorted legs. What are the different uh, hypotheses? The two, I guess, maybe the three most uh, prominent hypotheses right now involve either exposure to increasing amounts of ultraviolet radiation, that is, increases in sunlight that may be associated with uh, depletion of the ozone layer. There are very, there's very good experimental evidence that shows that uh, 
frogs with missing legs can, can be the result of exposure to, to UV light, to sunlight. Uh, a second uh, area of, of uh, investigation involves parasites, which are little tiny aquatic worms that can uh, infect the frog, form cysts uh, inside the developing leg that appear to cause the uh, legs to grow abnormally. And uh, finally, and, and maybe this is uh, uh, the area of concern that's been uh, highest on everybody's priority list, uh, the possibility that uh, a chemical contaminant of some kind is involved. And here we have uh, maybe the most convincing evidence of all, and that comes from the studies in Canada, which show a very clear association between uh, deformed frogs and the use of agricultural pesticides. What are the deformed frogs of Minnesota telling us? Well, I think they're telling us a lot. Uh, we're, we're still trying to understand the message. They, one of the things they're clearly telling us is that after uh, close to 350 million years on the planet, frogs have encountered something that they really can't cope with. This is a, frogs are sensitive, but they're a very durable kind of organism. They've been around for hundreds of millions of years. Something out there is changing at a very rapid rate, and uh, they're not successfully adapting to it. They will adapt, but the adaptation may be to... Uh, uh, simply disappear. Well, Bill Souter, uh, thank you so much. Likewise, John. Thank you. William Souter is the author of the new book, A Plague of Frogs, The Horrifying True Story. This has been your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, and a special feature of this broadcast. <laughs> That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music